addicted to the drama Only attracted to things that'll bring the trauma Overseas, yeah, we trying to stop terrorism But we still got terrorists here living In the USA, the big CIA The Bloods and the Crips and the KKK But if you only have love for your own race Then you only leave space to discriminate And to discriminate only generates hate And when you hate, then you're bound to get irate Madness is what you demonstrate And that's exactly how anger works and operates Man, you gotta have love just to set it straight Take control of your mind and meditate Let your soul gravitate to the love, y'all, y'all People killing, people dying Children hurt and you hear them crying Can you practice what you preach And what you turn the other cheek Father, 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 help us And some guidance from above These people got me, got me questioning Always shown by the media Negative images is the main criteria Infecting the young minds faster than bacteria Kids wanna act like what they see in the cinema yeah. Whatever happened to the values of humanity Whatever happened to the fairness and equality Instead of spreading love, we're spreading animosity Lack of understanding leading us away from unity That's the reason why sometimes I'm feeling under That's the reason why sometimes I'm feeling down It's no wonder why sometimes I'm feeling under Gotta keep my faith alive till love is found Great speeches and interviews on Axis Sacramento and The Voice. I'm Steve Lerman. Today's program starts out with the limits of power and the end of American exceptionalism. Andrew Basevich discusses the diminishing returns of America's long-held foreign policy of expansionism, the dangers of rampant consumerism at home, and an imperial executive president. 
very pleased to uh, have with us tonight the distinguished BU University professor and award-winning author, uh, Dr. Andrew Basevich. Dr. Basevich is a graduate of the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, and he served in the United States Army in Vietnam from the summer of 1970 until the summer of 1971. His military career continued into the early 1990s, and he retired from the Army as a lieutenant colonel. He holds a Ph.D. in American Diplomatic History from Princeton University, and before joining the faculty of Boston University in 1998, he taught both at West Point and at John Hopkins University. <clears throat> he is the author of several books, and his writings have appeared in many national publications, such as Foreign Affairs, The Nation, The New York Times, and The Wall Street Journal. Professor Basevich's work has been praised both by the conservative and the liberal um, uh, population in this country. Uh, needless to say, Professor Ar uh, Basevich's archive is part of uh, the Howard Gottlieb Archival Research Collection, and um, we are very, very happy to have him here tonight. Following his talk, Professor Basevich will answer a couple of questions from the audience, and we will set microphones up in the aisles, and people will come up to the microphones um, to ask their questions. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, I would um, uh, ask you to uh, please greet, and I am honored to introduce Professor Andrew Basevich. Well, thanks for the invitation and the opportunity to speak to you. <clears throat> this actually is the first time I've ever been described as a beloved professor which means that perhaps I should think about retiring. On the other hand, since my retirement savings have evaporated in the last three weeks, <laughs> I might as well hang around for a few more years. These are uh, precarious, uh, even frightening times. To a, a greater extent than I can remember, perhaps in ways not seen since the traumatic events of 1968 in our country, the United States really does seem to be teetering on the brink of an abyss. And worse, our political system seems ill-prepared and desperately ill-equipped to respond effectively. Now, it seems to me that the urgent imperative of the moment is really twofold. And the first is to see the world as it is. And the second, perhaps more difficult, is to see ourselves as we are, which implies viewing the past without illusions. This implies abandoning the mythic narrative of America's relationship with the world beyond our borders. Now, the mythic narrative goes like this. A nation providentially set apart in the new world and wanting nothing more than to tend to its own affairs, grudgingly responded to calls that it assumed the mantle of global leadership in order to preserve the possibility of human freedom. This mythic narrative is wildly misleading. Worse... It obstructs efforts today to gauge accurately the predicament in which we find ourselves. A truer and also more useful narrative would allow that the United States became a great power because it sought power and succeeded spectacularly in acquiring it. Now, among the factors contributing to that spectacular success, two stand out. First, the folly of our 20th century competitors, chiefly Japan and Germany, then the Soviet Union, but also including from an earlier period Great Britain and France. The second factor contributing to our success is the skill, savvy, and ruthlessness of American statesmen. The central theme of the policies devised by those statesmen over the past two centuries is not one of isolationism reluctantly abandoned somewhere between September 1939 and December 1941. Rather, the central theme of U.S. foreign policy 
is expansionism, beginning in the wake of the American Revolution and continuing down to the present day. What did this expansionist project aim to achieve? Well, in the 19th century, the emphasis was on the acquisition of territory so that this republic could extend from sea to shining sea, and also on the opening of markets. For a brief moment in 1898, the focus shifted to acquiring colonies, an unhappy experiment with formal empire that was soon abandoned. Then in the 20th century, the focus shifted again, and the priorities became political stability, economic and military access, adherence to American norms, and in strategically critical regions that became more numerous and more expansive as time came along, outright hegemony. To sum it up in a single phrase, an expansionist foreign policy in the 20th century sought the creation of an informal empire. What means did the United States employ to achieve these aims? Well, put simply, whatever was necessary and whatever worked. At various times, U.S. policy emphasized diplomacy, dissembling, threats and coercion, invasion and conquest, infiltration and filibustering, acquisitions paid for with cold, hard cash, and population removal, or what we would today describe as ethnic cleansing. With what results? Well, apart from a few missteps along the way, and in that category I might include the annexation of the Philippines, the mishandling of Cuba, and the Vietnam War, the strategy of expansionism proved immensely successful. Now, this was not a morally uplifting enterprise. Statecraft is seldom, if ever, a morally uplifting enterprise. It was, however, a remarkably effective enterprise. As a result, by the midpoint of the 20th century, right around the time that I was born, the United States had become the most powerful, the richest, and in the eyes of the white majority, at least, the freest nation on the face of the earth. Now, let me emphasize in particular that last point. A foreign policy of expansion enhanced American power. Power brought with it material abundance. And incrementally over time, abundance made freedom accessible to an ever-growing percentage of the American people. To put it another way, abundance, the anticipation and the reality of an ever-larger economic pie, endowed our political system with an elasticity that enabled and encouraged political leaders to deal with social problems through the distribution of largesse, cutting into the American dream those who had been excluded or marginalized without requiring the privileged to to make any significant sacrifices. Politically, there was no need to rob Peter to pay Paul. There was enough to go around to satisfy the demands and the expectations of both. Granted, none of this happened quickly. None of this happened without struggle by the deprived and the oppressed. Indeed, it was not until the United States reached the acme of its economic dominance in the 1950s and 1960s that the circle of freedom finally widened enough to admit blacks, women, Latinos, gays, and the disabled. But here's the problem. Right then, in the 1960s, more or less coinciding with the Vietnam War, the positive correlation between expansion, power, abundance, and freedom began to become undone. With few people taking proper notice, from that time forward, further efforts at expansionism have led to the squandering of American power. Expansionist expansionist policies have undercut American prosperity, and to the extent that the central government, and especially the executive branch, began to acquire excessive authority, the emphasis on expansionism abroad 
also began to compromise American freedom at home. The end of the Cold War helped obscure this ominous development. History had ended, it was said, and we declared ourselves the winner. During the 1990s, in describing the position of the United States in the new post-Cold War order, it became fashionable to employ terms like indispensable nation, sole superpower, to refer to a unipolar global order. But this was all hogwash. The numbers told a different story. Numbers related to trade imbalances, persistent federal deficits, and mushrooming entitlement programs, plummeting savings rates, and energy dependence. To balance the books, increasingly we began to resort to borrowing. Now borrowing from foreign governments. Counting on others to underwrite an American way of life, increasingly based on the prospect of unfettered consumption. Watch your step, Mr. D. President, call your enemy. Pick you up in dark of night. Then you will be out of sight. Bottom Mecca, Mr. L. And your rides can go to hell. Bring you inside for a chat. Disappearing just like that. Where they find you, Mr. N. Over in Afghanistan. Rotten Cuba, yes indeed No sounds to hear, no sights to see Mr. Q, what did you do? You spoke your mind now, didn't you? They did a tap dance on your phone Now you're dancing all alone When they came for all these men I said nothing, nothing then Then when they came for me There was no one left to see They wave the flag and they say we're free But that's for those who do agree Watch your step, Mr. D You are now the enemy You want to speak out on TV Well, that's a good one, Mr. C Station owner, they say no. They got a license, don't you know? Your plan for marching, Mr. T. Well, that's bad for security. The Bill of Rights was fine before, but it's not for this kind of war. You went down to the library. Why didn't you, Mr. G? Your card was lifted by the Fed. I wanna see just what you read. You sent money, Mr. B, to the foreign charity. They say it went to make a bomb. But now it's you who come to harm. The Congress did what it was told. But you know they're bought and sold. The courts, they sat upon their hands. Who are they to take a stand? The press, it seems, just didn't care. They're covering Joe Millionaire. Watch your step, Mr. D. You are now the enemy.
now, back to The Limits of Power and the End of American Exceptionalism with Andrew Basevich. The actual theme of the post-Cold War era, basically the decade of the 1990s, the actual theme of the post-Cold War era was this. Americans were refusing to live within their means, and they expected someone else to foot the bill. The United States was increasingly becoming a debtor nation. When it came to energy and credit, it was becoming increasingly dependent on others. Yet to forestall the day of reckoning, when it came to foreign policy, post-Cold War administrations hewed to the expansionist tradition of American statecraft. Expansionist efforts now increasingly focused on imposing our will on the vast and troubled region of the world today commonly referred to as the Greater Middle East. We need to understand that the misnamed Global War on Terror, initiated by George W. Bush, ought to be seen as an expression of this urge to expand. Now, of course, the immediate rationale for that war is to prevent the recurrence of another 9-11. But the chosen means to that end is to assert American power throughout the greater Middle East. The true object of the exercise is to transform this region, to employ American power, both hard and soft, to impose order while ensuring stability, order, access, both economic and military, and to ensure adherence to American norms. In essence, to establish an ambiguous U.S. hegemony so that the Islamic world will no longer serve as a breeding ground for terrorists who wish to kill us. The idea is to accomplish in the Middle East what the United States, albeit in radically different circumstances and with considerable help, accomplished in Germany and Japan 60 years ago. Don't take my word for it. Here is Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld speaking at a Pentagon press conference on September 18, 2001, one week after the 9-11 attacks. Quote, We have a choice, either to change the way we live, which is unacceptable, or to change the way that they live, and we chose the latter. Now, I don't want to make too much of a verb tense, but I do believe that the verb tense actually, in this case, is rather revealing. We chose the latter. That is to say, within a week of the 9-11 attacks, the basic decision had already been made at the highest levels of the United States government. The Bush administration was committed to changing the way they live. There's no need need here, I think, to explain in any great detail who we mean by they. They really encompasses the population, roughly, what, 1.4 billion people who live in the Islamic world. Well, changing the way they live meant that the United States was going to have to bring about a fundamental political and cultural transformation of the Islamic world. Here is Rumsfeld in a memo to President Bush. This would be a classified communication. Here is Rumsfeld in a memo to President Bush on September 30th, 2001, so almost three weeks after 9-11. Quote, If the war, and here we're not referring to the Iraq war, the Iraq war hasn't happened yet, we're talking about the larger enterprise, the global war. If the war does not significantly change the world's political map, the United States will not achieve its aim, end of quote. Along similar lines, here's Under Secretary of Defense for Policy Douglas Fife. Fife was the chief strategist in the Pentagon in the first uh, Bush administration. Fife, in a memo written to Rumsfeld in May 2004, America's purpose, wrote Fife, was, quote, to transform the Middle East and the broader world 
of Islam generally, end of quote. Now, oddly, or perhaps not so oddly, given the cultural revolution that we have experienced in our country over the past 40 years or so, the administration laid out this very bold agenda without making any effort to mobilize the country in support. In every war in American history, going back to the War of 1812, up to this war, in every war in American history, when the United States has entered into a conflict, the first thing that the, uh, that the federal government does is to expand the size of the army, to raise up the wherewithal in order to achieve our purpose. Not this time. United, the, the Bush administration embarked upon a global war intended to change the way they live without bothering to expand the size of the United States military. The president apparently assumed that the military assets in existence in September 2001 would suffice for all the tasks that lay ahead. The Bush administration after 9-11 did not ask the American people to make any sacrifices. Indeed, within about a week of the 9-11 attacks, President Bush explicitly, explicitly urged the American people to carry on as if there were no war. And I have to say we did as instructed. Now, the invasion of Iraq in March of 2003 was supposed to jumpstart this strategy of transformation. Iraq was really intended to be a demonstration project. Success there, which is which was anticipated to be achieved quickly and economically. Success there would set the stage for success elsewhere in the region, in Iran, Syria, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Pakistan. I don't I don't mean that there was a specific blueprint Phase one is Iraq, phase two is Syria. I also don't mean that they intended to, to, in a sequence, invade and occupy one country after another. What I do mean is that they expected that this emphatic demonstration of our capacity and our will to employ power, that through that demonstration we would fundamentally transform power relationships throughout the region so that others would, in essence, get in line, toe the line. Here's Condoleezza Rice quoted in uh, Bob Woodward's recently released bestseller. Quote, I have believed from day one that Iraq was going to change the face of the Middle East. I have never stopped believing that, end of quote. Well, the invasion of Iraq has not changed the face of the Middle East, at least not in the way that Rice and others predicted. The invasion of Iraq has not brought stability to the region. If anything, the reverse is true. The invasion of Iraq has not enhanced our influence and standing in the Islamic world. It has not caused others to fall in line or to toe the line. It has, in fact, fostered intense anti-Americanism. Now, by the time the next president takes office in January, the sixth anniversary of the Iraq War will be approaching. At that point, the United States will have expended probably, I don't think anybody is doing a very careful job of keeping the books, but probably somewhere in the vicinity of a trillion dollars, while sacrificing the lives of over 4,000 soldiers. And yet when the new president takes office, there will still be 150 or so thousand American troops in Iraq, along, let us not forget, with another 30,000 in Afghanistan. In other words, if you're keeping score, during his two terms as president, President Bush will have begun two wars, and he, he will leave office without bringing either of those to a conclusion. The question demands our attention. Can anyone possibly think at this stage that a strategy of changing the way they live is plausible or affordable? Now, if we are willing to see the world as it is and to see ourselves as we really are, what exactly might we learn? Well, I think one thing that we might learn is that despite our remarkable efforts over the past seven years, we might learn that the Islamic world is not nearly as malleable 
as we imagined back in 2001. We might also learn that U.S. power, and especially the military power that we were once certain was our strong suit, that U.S. power is not nearly as great as we once imagined. It is now time for me to have a serious conversation with my most trusted advisor, one of the most happy-go-lucky people I know, my vice president, Dick Cheney. How's it going there, Dicko? Hi, how are you? Nice to see you. Dick. Uh Uh-oh. I'm fine. Yeah, Dick. Dick's health isn't always so good. His his heart, his ticker, not so good. That's where it is, right? Right there. (laughs) And of course, we felt it was important for all Americans to know that, God forbid, anything does ever happen to this great man. I stand ready to take over. You know, some people think Dick Cheney needs to be hooked up to a defibrillator. (laughs) But he always tells the truth. Four more friggin' years. Hey, Dick, um, I heard your daughter's Lebanese. So now on to the subject on my hands. What we need to talk to you about is something we're really excited about. Dick and I are very proud of our tax cuts for the rich. It's just really spiffy. Don't you think so, Dick? You know those Democrats, they like to tax and spend. Well, you know, when it comes to taxes, I like big cuts and I cannot lie. The Democrats can't deny. When Bush walks in with a plan you can embrace and waves cash in your face, you get sprung. Want to buy more stuff with cash? Never can get enough. The Dow Jones now is flying and more bling bling I am buying. Oh, baby, let me tell you now, dub your cuts tax. And now, messages from Access Sacramento. 